15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's a show about astronomy and space science. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. It's great to have your company once again. And this week on episode 275, we're going to be answering audience questions. We've got a whole batch of questions in. We're going to mix up some audio questions and some email questions so that it's all fair. And we're going to be looking at gravitational waves and what happens when they hit a black hole. Uh, we've got questions about redshift, questions about ramjet travel, uh, and uh, a really good question uh, asking Fred about some of the, um, the the personal finds in astronomy that he's been excited about over his long, long, <laughs> long career. Uh, so uh, we'll be looking at that and, uh, and plenty more today on Space Nuts. Uh, speaking of the man himself, uh, let's welcome Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. The long, long, long Fred Watson, as well as the long. Yeah. Can you just move that Zimmer frame out of shot? <laughs> okay. It's Sorry. going to be one of those days, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I think, it, I think it is every week, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, most weeks, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we might as well get straight down to business. And our first question comes from Sydney. G'day, Fred and Andrew. Look forward to every new episode of uh, Space Nuts each week. Long may it continue. Paul from Sydney. I'm aware that black holes distort space-time so that matter crossing the event horizon can't emerge on the other side, as it were. Gravitational waves as I understand it, are ripples in space-time itself. So what happens when a gravitational wave or waves confront the event horizon of a black hole? Does the ripple stop, then distorted? I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks and keep up the good work. Cheers. Is it good work? That is another question. Uh, but, yeah, thank you, Paul. Uh, great to hear from you and hope all is well in Sydney. Well, Fred should be able to answer that because he's there. <laughs> That's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> he could have just come over to your place and asked. Oh, no, he couldn't. But anyway, um, uh, gravitational waves and what happens when they hit a black hole. I suppose we should first review what a gravitational wave is for the sake of the exercise. Uh, yes, indeed, we should. And uh, so given that... Uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, back in 1915 demonstrated, uh, or postulated, uh, but it was then proven to be correct, uh, that space is flexible. Then if it's flexible, then you should be able to get waves passing through it, waves in space-time, in fact, because it's space and time are part of the same entity. Um, so the flexibility of space is uh, really... Um, well, we would call it totally rigid. Um, I wrote the number down for Space Warp because I talk about this in the new kids book. And so I can remember what it is. Uh, space is 100 billion, billion times more rigid than steel. Yes, I, I knew we did talk about that <laughs> yeah, once. It's a it's phenomenal number, yeah. So it takes a lot to bend it, um, you know, uh, but... In the same way as if you hit a lump of steel with a hammer, it'll ring because waves are traveling through it. That's true mm. with with space as well. So if you've got an acceleration of a 
um, you know, a pair of neutron stars colliding or something like that, something accelerating, it sets up these gravitational waves which then pass through space and can now be detected by a number of detectors on our planet. Um, but uh, the, it's, I think it's fair to say that um, the study of black hole, the, sorry, the study of gravitational waves is in its infancy. It's only you know what five years since we've since we observed the first one, yeah. um, six it might be now, and that's that means uh, it, it it's really still a study that is evolving and it's evolving very rapidly, and so the interaction of gravitational waves with other celestial objects whilst it's fairly well understood from a theoretical physics point of view, is not actually, hasn't been that well studied because we haven't had the opportunity to do that. Um, so the interaction of gravitational waves with a black hole, as I understand it, the, theoret the theoreticians say that since a black hole has essentially zero cross-sectional area, uh, the effect of it on passing gravitational waves is minuscule, minuscule. Ah. Um, in well, terms you know, of... <laughs> black so, holes are so tough, not, not many things can tangle with them and come out on top. Uh, that's right, indeed, that's right. Although gravitational waves kind of underlie what, what black holes are. Um, with, in my naive, um, uh, I'm, I'm not a theoretical physicist, but, but I do see what the sorts of things that they're saying. Uh, I would expect gravitational waves to be effectively refracted around black holes because they're a bit like um, electronic, uh, sorry, electromagnetic waves um, are. So uh, the the bottom line is uh, that they follow. I think they do. I think they are refracted. I'm just I'm just looking at you know web pages of my <laughs> much more learned colleagues than me. Um, and it says exactly what I just said. <laughs> oh, there you are. Uh, a gravitational wave follows a path through space-time called a null geodesic. This is the same path that will be followed by a light ray travelling in the same direction. And gravitational waves are affected by black holes in the same ways that light rays are. So they are distorted by it because it's, you know, because of the gravitational field distorts the space around it. It behaves like a gravitational lens and uh, th that's the way it, it works. Um, just let me, there's a caveat from this, this pun pundit. There's always a caveat <laughs> when it comes to astronomy. Uh, we know this, but... Yeah, yes. Okay. All right. So, so you, yeah, it, all it's saying is that there's no transfer of energy between the gravitational wave and the black hole. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so black holes behave, uh, sorry, gravitational waves behave like light waves. Okay, which means that if we on Earth got hit by a black ho uh, by a uh, gravitational wave right now, we'd notice nothing. We'd be able to detect it with our observations, but we we wouldn't see or feel or no, know anything right. about there, it. There wouldn't be an energy transfer uh, except the minuscule amount that goes into making these mirrors vibrate in the LIGO and Virgo detectors. Mm. So pretty simple in the end, uh, Paul. It's not going to do much to a black hole, um, except the one in Calcutta perhaps. But anyway, uh, it's um, easily answered as it turns out. Uh, well, <laughs> 
It is when you you know the right people to look it up with. <laughs> yeah, of course, as you said, we still are learning about gravitational waves. So yeah, yeah. there might be other things that we haven't figured out yet that will turn up down the track. Thanks for your question, Paul. Appreciate it. Let's uh, go to a text question. This one only came in uh, this week, but uh, it sort of caught our eye. Uh, from Todd. He says, uh, I read an article in a magazine, then searched the internet to find an actual explanation. Nothing. Uh, what What is the actual mechanism by which expanding space causes redshift? I've read that it uh, it's to do with the change in the energy, state of light, but what mechanism affects the light in this way? Everyone is simply asserting that this is a thing. I suppose it's possible we don't know the why yet. Oh, wow. Thank you, Todd. Um, that, that particular question certainly intrigued Fred, and yeah. he's going to answer it on the fly because I didn't tell him it was coming. <laughs> so um, it's true that it is a loss of energy, but a, better, but, but a better way of thinking about it is if you regard light as a wave motion. Now, light has the property that it's both. It's both a wave and a particle. It has um, attributes of both a massless particle and uh, a wave, and the particles are what we call photons. So um, the, the, probably the, the best way to think of it, and I think this is the way most physicists think of it, and it's really more to do with geometry, is that is, as, as light passes through uh, an expanding space-time uh, as a, a wave motion, uh, its wave, wavelength is simply stretched. As space expands... So does the length of the wave, um, and so you get the redshift because uh, an expansion of you know of, of a wave or an, an elongation of a light wave produces a shift uh, towards the red end of the spectrum. Uh, and it, then if you so that that's the sort of geometrical um, uh, idea of what's happening, and that seems pretty reasonable to me. Mm. <laughs> I've gone deeply into this, I have to say. Uh, and uh, there is some very deep physics in the you know, the mechanics of space-time and what exactly it is. We don't really understand uh, fully. But uh, however, uh, the naive version, if I can put it that way, is that as space expands, the wavelength of the light expands too. Now, because uh, light is both a wave and a particle, the equivalent of um, the light wave getting longer in, in wavelength, is that the particle has a lower energy. Um, so photons, uh, their, their energy, you know, we normally with light talk about wavelength, but you could equally well talk about the energy of a photon. And as the wavelength gets longer, the energy decreases. So uh, it's what happens, uh, another way of, of um, thinking about this is when when light leaves uh, a, a, an object like um, a, a dense star, for example, a neutron star, uh, it's, it, th that light is losing energy because of the gravitational pull of the neutron star. And it, it doesn't slow down. It goes at the same speed, but it loses energy. It becomes redshifted, which is what we call the gravitational redshift. Um, so once again, I think it helps if you think in terms of uh, particles and waves. Um, I hope that explains. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah, um, I, I'm not surprised that he had trouble finding answers on the interwebs because they they tend to steer you into all strange places. And you you often end up in those forums where someone asks a question and there are five thousand responses, none of which answer it. 
That's right. Just I hate like, getting I hate getting hauled into forums. I find them so useless. It's just like space nuts, really, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's you very much like thousand that. answers. Not just not a forum. for any use. Mm. While we're talking about light, and I probably could have asked this question after um, uh, the question on ramjets in terms of space travel, but they're, they're kind of related to both. And I, I've been trying to p- think of a, a, t- a good time to ask you this question, so I hope you don't mind if I throw one in yeah. at a left field. Uh, left field. We talk about um, light sails, using light sails and, and projecting spacecraft using light sails uh, and lasers. And it got me to wondering if you could create a spaceship that uses light sails but propels itself with an onboard laser. Would that be possible? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> my, sci- my sci-fi brain came up with that one. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, so rather than have the laser on Earth firing its uh, light into space and, and pushing along a spacecraft through the light sails, could you actually create a spacecraft that had an onboard laser to it push itself along? Uh, yeah. The problem is you're sort of picking yourself up by your own bootlaces. That's what I wondered. <laughs> and I think that is equally true with light as it is with uh, with bootlaces. Um, the- but, but in fact, the, the laser being on board the craft is emitting the light, therefore it's not on board the craft anymore and it's hitting the sails. Yeah, could it could it work? I mean, if you think of it, this is kind of the wrong way to think of what's happening here because light is massless. Um, but if you imagine it, that light's a st- stream of pellets, you're shooting them out with a laser, and th- that gives you a backward reaction on the laser. Then you're hitting the yeah. sail, and that gives you a forward reaction on the sail. Um, so you are picking yourself up by your own bootlaces, and certainly all the uh, the, the light sail discussions I've uh, seen uh, involve effectively stationary lasers, um, uh, usually in orbit around the Earth rather than on the Earth because you want to, you want to minimise atmospheric absorption and things of that sort. Um, so I think the answer is that, no, you can't do it that way because it's so p- picking yourself. The only way to do it for long-haul travel would be to fire a laser from Earth and you just go in a straight line and when you get there you smash into something because you can't stop or yeah, you, you could set way. up over time Laser space stations. Way, way stations, yeah. But you've yeah. got to put them there first of all, which means you've got to do the trip. The slow way. Uh, somehow, yeah. So, you you know, yeah. <laughs> I think doing it from us probably the, the way to go. Yeah, at this stage. All right, fair enough. I just wondered. It uh, got me thinking. Okay, uh, thanks to Paul and Todd for their questions. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll have a, a couple of more audience questions for you here on Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are doing audience questions on Space Nuts this week, and this one comes from, uh, well, he's becoming a bit of a regular. Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in genres galore. And let me just emphasize, this is my third time around with you guys, and it's Martin, not Mark. My name is Martin Berman Gorvine. So my question this week has to do with the practicalities of travel out of the solar system using a bussard ramjet. Um, Once you hit 
the Kuiper Belt and then the Oort Cloud, won't the spacecraft be endangered by however however much stuff is spread around out there? And if so, could the spacecraft dodge it by going out of, of the plane of the ecliptic? Or do the Kuiper Belt and uh, Oort Cloud actually form uh, spherical shells around the solar system? Love you guys. Can't wait to hear your answer. Bye. Thank you, Martin. Uh, my apologies. I'm pretty sure it was me that called you Mark, and that would have been just my brain snapping at that particular moment, probably got hit by a gravitational wave. But, uh, yes, Martin, I, I do apologise. Uh, maybe if we uh, get four or five more questions from you, I'll get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, ra- Ramjets. Yeah, so you're just on that topic, uh, Dave, um, you often used to get your name mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> Fred and Dave. Um, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Let's start with what's a Bossard ramjet. Uh, and it's uh, basically, um, and we, we have to preface this by saying this is entirely theoretical. It's a theoretical method uh, to propel spacecraft that was actually proposed uh, 60 years ago back in 1960, 61 years ago, by a physicist, Robert Bossard. Um, And then, you know, it was grabbed onto by science fiction authors uh, and uh, science, uh, non-fiction authors, but mostly science fiction authors. Uh, And is is kind of entered the, what you might call the popular scientific um, mentality. So what is it? Uh, The idea is that you, you build um, a device that has these <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, huge electromagnetic fields that, that spread thousands of kilometres into space on either side of the spacecraft, and you shape them into being like a, a scoop uh, for the interstellar or interplanetary medium. Uh, actually, the interstellar medium is what's usually considered. Uh, that's the, the, the hydrogen between the stars. So you're moving at high speed with this thing. You've got this gigantic electromagnetic scoop at the at the front. It scoops up the hydrogen and compresses it just in the way a ramjet does with, with the air, um, mm. a, a conventional ramjet burning um, fuel in, in highly pressurized air because of the forward speed of the of the device. So you've got the same sort of thing. You compress the hydrogen. Uh, you don't burn it, though. Um, as you compress it, uh, its temperature goes up, and eventually you get thermonuclear fusion, uh, which is what happens inside the sun. And then the because of the magnetic field, you blast out the uh, energy as an exhaust, the, um, you know, the, the, the plasma that's created by the nuclear fusion. You blast it out as an exhaust, and it generates a thrust. So uh, that is the, uh, the basic idea of the Bossard ramjet. And it's, it, it's actually – people have debated it over the 60 years since it was proposed as to whether it's feasible or not. Um, there was some work done in the, the later on in the 1960s uh, that suggested that um, the hydrogen density in the uh, environments of the solar system is just not high enough to, to make this idea work. Okay. Um, other people have suggested that you could 
you could use a different uh, nuclear fusion chain, uh, something called the CNO cycle, which is another way of building up atoms inside a fusion reactor uh, to, 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 to give you the effect. But I think the general view of the scientific community is, yeah, nice idea. Mm. Um, so let's just step back, though, uh, to get to um, – it's Martin, isn't it? Not Mark. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Dave, I forgot there for a minute. That's um, okay. To get back to – yes, to get back to uh, Martin's question. Um, is the density – basically, the question is, would the density of objects in the, you know, the, the Kuiper Belt and the Oak Cloud, would that be high enough to, uh, to form a – essentially a, a problem for a, 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 a thing with a scoop thousands of kilometres in diameter, an electromagnetic scoop? And the answer is no. Uh, the density of objects is very low out there. And, uh, you know, um, Martin's right that the Oort cloud is envis envisaged as a spherical shell of cometary nuclei. But, um, they're, 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 you know, the whole... The, if you add up all these cometary nuclei to get the mass of the Oort cloud, it is tiny. It's absolutely tiny. Um, and that's telling you that the, the space between these things is enormous. The, the surface density is very, very low. So if you could get your Bussard ramjet to work, there's a good chance that it would speed through the Oort cloud without noticing a thing. There you are. Mm. Of course, they are working on ramjets in our atmosphere that, as you said, uh, operate with um, uh, compressed air. Yeah. Uh, from what I hear, they've got potential to be rather fast, like uh, Mark 6. Yeah, well, you, you've got to get them to that sort of speed for them to work at all, Yeah. Um, uh, which is something I didn't know when I was about 11 and I made one uh, and tried to make it go by throwing it in the air as, as hard as I could. <laughs> and I, I, Actually, um, I use kerosene and um, i shouldn't tell people this because it's probably illegal now in a, oh. in a small tube it's only about um, uh, 150 millimeters six inches long um but it did get you know it, because of the the, the the breeze of the air going past it there was a fairly impressive flame came out of the back but it certainly wasn't a thrust <laughs> Just... a friend a friend of mine and i tried to make a jet engine once and we put we 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 did the turbines the whole bit we had it in a casing we had we had everything set and uh, we fueled it with motor mower petrol oh, yeah. which we gravity which we gravity fed <laughs> into it we spun the turbines lit her up and it actually did slide across the floor for a bit until it exploded <laughs> Because of the petrol on top, yeah, yeah, we didn't quite think about that. No, but, no, um, yes, yeah, you, you wouldn't do that in your garage these days. I wouldn't think, but um, gee, it was fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. I have um, seen. Um, sorry, we're way off track here, but I oh, saw. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, it was my son. One of my sons directed me to a YouTube video several years ago, in which somebody actually managed to make a gas turbine work uh, mm. based on a, a, a turbo compressor from a car, an old turbo compressor, which actually has the main components. It's got a, a, a turbine and a, and a compressor. And all you've got to do is connect them up in the right way and squirt fuel in and get it going at high enough speed, and sure enough, it will work. Yeah. It's impressive, yeah. Don't don't try this at no, home. No, it was looked like a total fire risk. And I'm not joking. <clears throat> Everything got red hot, by the way. That was mm -hmm. the thing. You, know, you can see it all glowing. Yeah. <clears throat> 
Yeah, well, we got red hot tempers yes, fired I bet at you us. Did. Yeah, I bet you did. Yes. All right. Thank you, Martin. Great to hear from you. Uh, now we're off to Germany. Hey, guys. This is Gloomy from Germany. I'm a frequent listener. I really love the show. And uh, thank you very much for the great work you're doing. So I was just wondering, since you've been in the field for such a long time, <laughs> for, for a long time, yeah, you've been, been, been around for a while, um, I was just wondering... Like a lot of things have come to light over the last couple of decades, and many of those have reshaped the way how we we view the universe quite dramatically. I was just wondering if you would be willing to share one or two examples um, where such discoveries have kind of come close to you, have been personal to you, maybe because you had to reshape your views in a big way or because something really, really unexpected came to light or... I don't know, for any other reason, just maybe one or two prime examples of the most personal, exciting, to you personally exciting um, discoveries that have come to light um, while you have been in the field. Yeah, that would be cool if you could share that. Thanks a lot for that. And um, yeah, as I said, Kate, a great show. Keep up the good work. And thank you very much for it. Thank you. I think you said Gilmy. Uh, could have been Mark. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, lovely to hear from you and uh, refer to previous comment about Zimmer frame. Uh, but, um, yes, uh, a couple of personal discoveries or discoveries that you uh, found personally exhilarating. I think, um, if I may go first, because I'll be very quick, for me it was once watching a documentary, and even though I knew it, it wasn't until they said it that it actually dawned on me that there was a time where people did not know that the sun was a star. And it kind of gobsmacked me and it stuck with me. But, um, yeah, it, it was um, – uh, I, I think that the, the, the fact was figured out quite some time ago, but for a long, long time people didn't see the sun as being the same thing as all the other dots in the sky. And it was only sort of one day someone went – you know what I reckon? I reckon that's a star, and voila, the revelation is made, and that 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 stunned me. That you know, I never considered the possibility that at some stage in the history of humanity, we didn't put that together, uh, and so I found that quite a, a revelation. And and to me, that even though I wasn't around, Fred might have been four fifty <laughs> BC. I think it happened. Um, the uh, the, um, uh, the 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 knowledge that we gained from that was quite quite incredible and and we still to this day study the sun and are learning more and more about it and um and and you know knowing that it's a star is something that we all take for granted but for some time we did not put the two together hmm. so so for me that that is a very i find that a very personal um moment when i when I came to the realisation that people didn't know it was a star <laughs> at some stage in the past, like a couple of weeks ago. But um, and I suppose the other thing um, for me growing up, I think the biggest thing that happened, which is not quite what you're asking, but for me was the Apollo missions and, and being able to sit there and watch someone step onto another world for the first time in human history. Uh, I still equate that to being one of the greatest achievements of humanity and uh, look where it's taken us now. And and we did it so fast. That's what I, I think is extraordinary about uh, the, the way we went from the first flight to the first step on the moon in such a short mm. time frame. <clears throat> incredible, incredible. 
So those are my couple of thoughts, Fred. Yeah, um, and and it's yeah. I've sort of been involved with science since well, since I was at school, and that's a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, Gilmy knows that. Yeah. yeah, sixty years of being a scientist. It's a bit frightening, really. Um, but um, and and. Uh, the things that that come to mind to answer a question like this are, are things that um, I, I certainly wasn't involved with the discoveries, but I was close to the action in that, um, in particular, um, when I was an astronomer working at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh in the 1970s, um, I was actually working on our own galaxy and the motion of stars in the galaxy. But um, a lot of my colleagues were working on cosmology that large-scale structure of the universe, how, how galaxies behave. And I remember very clearly uh, when the first uh, gravitationally lensed objects turned up, um, and in particular when people started discovering fragments of Einstein rings on images taken with large telescopes. This is before the Hubble telescope. It's, um, you know, it actually wasn't before the Anglo-Australian telescope. The Anglo-Australian telescope was working then, but it was certainly early in the in the piece. And people started seeing um, circular features on deep photographs of the sky. And uh, I remember the discussions about what these could be. Um, you know, I mean, the a lot of people quipped that, you know, somebody had put a coffee cup down on the photograph and you got this circle uh, a mark on the on the image. Um, people wondered whether they were spiral arms that had broken off galaxies or something like that. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the real pundits amongst them remembered that Einstein had predicted in 1916, I think it was, after the general theory had been published, that you might get circular features caused by the lensing effect of, uh, of, of, of dense objects, the fact that gravitational lenses turn things that are a long way off in the universe. If, they go, if the light from them goes past a massive object, then it get, gets turned into this, this um, distorted image. And sure enough, that's what they turned out to be. But um, it was so unexpected to me. I remember almost having my breath taken away at the time when this entirely new suite of phenomena was discovered um, uh, with over a very short time period. It, it sort of emerged from the, the back blocks of, uh, of uh, fairly obscure publications uh, and then suddenly we were in a regime where we could see gravitational lenses everywhere. Uh, and the other big change was throughout that 70s period, we were all pretty well fixated on the idea that the expansion of the universe would slow down uh, and eventually there might be a big crunch. Um, I wrote a spoof paper on it once, which never got published, uh, <laughs> probably just as well. Uh, but uh, they, they all thought that the, you know, eventually the expanding universe would collapse on itself and there'd mm. be a big crunch perhaps uh, some billions of years down the track, uh, which, uh, of course, Brian Schmidt famously named the uh, Gnab Gib uh, for the Big Bang backwards. We've talked about that before. We didn't think of any of that at the time. But it was you know, it was sort of common knowledge in astrophysics that the universe 
would slow down in its expansion because of all the gravity of everything inside it. And so the 1998 discovery that Brian and his colleagues made and um, Saul Pulamuta and his team in uh, in the USA, uh, that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, that was just breathtaking. It blew us all away. It was the last Mm. thing we expected. By then I was working in Australia. I was the astronomer in charge at the National Observatory. But... Um, yeah, uh, astonishing stuff. Yeah. Um, just going back to the the idea of the question, um, it's been in my mind for a while that I'd really like to do a book on how astronomy has changed during my lifetime, during my mm. time working in it, because it has it's transformed completely, and a lot of that's come from the the, the technology that we have, the instrumentation that we use now. You could call it Fred Watson, a century of knowledge. <laughs> Century of ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, Very good. Uh, Gilmy, I hope that uh, covers um, what you are asking us to do. And uh, I think Fred would have much, much more to offer if we gave him uh, extra time. So uh, maybe we can do that again in a future episode and talk about some of the other revelations that uh, that he's he's come across in his uh, amazing career like uh, you know holding the tripod while uh, Galileo set up his telescope <laughs> things like that just amazing man. me, me and Galileo were like that <laughs> just... <laughs> best buds yeah, yeah, yeah. all his, right uh, his english was rubbish though yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is space nuts with andrew dunkley and fred watson Space Nuts. By the way, if you would like to become a patron of Space Nuts, you can do that by logging onto our website. There are all sorts of options uh, to, uh, you know, maybe kick the can uh, with a little bit of cash once a month if you so desire. It is totally optional, but you can do that by visiting spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the um, support Space Nuts button and all the options are there so that you can uh, support us through either Patreon or Supercast or PayPal or whatever you like. A bloke gave me cash the other day (laughs) under the table. But uh, it's it's whatever way works for you and we do appreciate the support. If you uh, feel compelled to do that, great. If you don't, that's fine too. Uh, so go to our website if you'd like to become a patron and click on the Support Space Nuts button and go from there. Okay, Fred, we're off to Sweden. Hello, Fred and Andrew. It's Simon here from Sweden. I've been listening since episode three, I think, and I still love it, so keep it up. I've been wondering if it would be possible for an object large enough to be considered a moon to be caught in Earth's gravity and go into an orbit. Um, in other words... Would it be possible for us to get a second moon? No, oh, that's it. Okay, thank you, Simon. <laughs> thank you, Simon. Great to hear from you. And the answer is yes. So see you next week. <laughs> uh, no, um, I, 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 this does happen from time to time, and I, I've just picked up on an article, Fred, that uh, said that Earth did pick up a second moon uh, as late as uh, as recently as late last year. And it um, won't stay there because it, we, we can't hang on to it and it's only a tiny little thing. Uh, but it has been kind of our second moon for uh, for a little while now. I'm not sure if it's left yet or if it's um, still rotating around the planet. But it would have been passing by. We've picked it up with our gravity. It's stuck around a bit and will eventually get flung off, I think. 
And that's exactly the answer, Andrew. <laughs> You've been doing space nuts for too long. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's twenty twenty um, SO this object that I that I happened across. Okay. Well, the one I'm thinking of is twenty twenty CD three, okay. um, which uh, that has that was in orbit around the Earth between two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and twenty. Um, so, um, what what basically what's happening is these near Earth objects, uh, near Earth asteroids, basically, uh, are in orbits that sort of intersect the Earth's orbit. They have some sort of resonance with the Earth's orbit. Um, and they basically just get uh, picked up by the Earth's gravity and um, becomes a, essentially a satellite uh, of the Earth. <laughs> Sorry about the banging. You probably hear housework. It's our, housework um, getting done. So our new dishwasher being installed. <laughs> yeah, never mind. I'm glad I'm not doing it. That's all right. I don't have a hammer big enough to do that sort of thing. Um, so yes, the you know it's the Earth's gravity can think things that are. I guess what you, what we're saying is these objects are moving relatively slowly relative to the Earth and part, come near enough to the Earth that the Earth's gravity grabs them um, and they become orbital around the Earth for a short period. And then the effect of the sun's gravity and probably the gravity of the other planets, as well as the interference from the moon, which is much bigger than any of these objects. They're all tiny uh, lumps of rock, basically. Uh, it means that they're, they're thrown off. Um, there's... Um, one, what's sometimes described as a stable quasi-satellite of the Earth, that's a thing called 469219-Kamo-Olewa, and that's a Hawaiian name, which means it was discovered probably oh, by I... Pan-Stars 2, yeah. uh, Kamo-Olewa. Nearly right. Mm. <laughs> um, that's an object that uh, it, it's... It's it's not a true satellite because it's too far away from the Earth, but it it's a sort of quasi satellite. So it 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 orbits, um, you know, it, it orbits around uh, what probably one of the stable Lagrange points of the Earth. That's the the, the kind of you know what essentially happens, and that raises the po prospect of what you might call Earth Trojans, which are asteroids that uh, live in that. Um, area of space 60 in, in the Earth's orbit, but 60 degrees above, or sorry, 60 degrees ahead of the Earth or 60 degrees behind the Earth, just like the mm. Jupiter Trojans. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm mangling this answer, Andrew, probably partly because of the hammering. Uh, but the, the bottom line is, yes, things can be captured. Often uh, these objects turn out to be spent uh, spacecraft rocket bodies. They're, they're often rocket bodies. In fact, a recent one was actually, I think, the launch vehicle for Chang'e 2, yeah. uh, which was one of the early Chinese lunar missions. Mm. Um, can't remember when that was. Actually, yeah, 8th of December 2017. That's an object called uh, YX205B9 uh, in an orbit around the Earth, but actually uh, is the booster stage from Chang'e 2. Yeah. But picking up something larger is very unlikely. Uh, you know, where passes by like a Muamua and Borisov, and, yeah. and, and yeah. you know, we, there'd be 
at the wrong angle, wrong wrong, you know, wrong, wrong speed, speed actually, wrong place to actually get yeah. picked up. Yeah. In fact, they're, so, they're going too fast even to be picked up by the sun's gravity. So Yeah. So it's got to be the right place, the right speed, yep. and then we might pick it up. But it doesn't ever seem to be a permanent pickup. It's, um, it, it's something that, you know, can't hang on and gets flung off again like this uh, this little rock yep. that they found yep. last year. Mm. <clears throat> Okay, there you have it, uh, and thanks for your question, Simon, and I uh, hope all is well for you in Svidenia. Uh, let us move, I don't even know if that's how you say it. Uh, let us move on to our final question, and this is a text question that comes from Andrew. He said, I love the podcast. Well, that's one. That's good. Uh, Assuming mathematics is the same across the whole universe, where do you think it is stored? I assume not in our 3D plus time physical world. And do you think our other intelligent life has found it in the same order as earthly humans? Wow, that's deep. It's a great question. Uh, it's got echoes for me of where the laws of physics come from. Um, because, you know, we understand the universe, we've got these physical principles that seem to hold for all scales, whether they're the centres of atoms or uh, superclusters of galaxies. Uh, physics seems to work. And so we've got these laws of physics that have been evolved, but where did they come from mm. uh, in, in terms of how, you know, how the universe works? And I think this is one of the biggest, it's one of the big mysteries. Now, those laws are highly mathematical. So the mathematics that um, we use to manipulate, to manipulate those laws is in itself an entity whose origin is not really known. Um, and uh, I, I think it, this is a, really a philosophical question where does where does mathematics live <laughs> you know is yeah. a, a a maths a massiverse or something like that and i'm not really uh, i haven't really done much reading on these topics but i'd like to because i think it's really interesting stuff um but it, it, I, I do like the idea of you know if you've got if you do have intelligent species elsewhere in the universe would they discover mathematics kind of in the same order that we've done, going through basic arithmetic and kind of heading through calculus and then um, things like Hilbert spaces, uh, essentially abstract algebra, all the stuff that we know is useful when you describe quantum physics, things of that sort. Uh, would, they be, would that be the path that will be followed? And my guess is that it probably wouldn't, would be something like that, something like yeah. what we followed here on Earth. I can't imagine that mathematics would differ regardless of where oh. you were in the universe or or who you were in the universe. Yeah. The mathematics would have to be the same. It just wouldn't well, make sense for it to differ greatly. Otherwise, the universe wouldn't be the universe. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. But you could envisage a situation where the mathematics that we use is like a small subset of, of the total mathematical content of the universe and we're beavering away with our little bit and there might be somebody else somewhere who's looking at a different bit of the uh, you know of the of this overall structure of mathematics um yeah I, I suppose it's also possible there are elements of mathematics that we haven't yet yes that's what solved. i mean yeah, this, yeah. Uh, that we're, we've got a, a known mathematics because uh, the people are still doing research in mathematics they're very very clever people mm. um and um Maybe, you know, somewhere else there are different 
there are different mathematical constructs. It's a really nice idea. I should think yeah. about that a bit more. <laughs> I, I often, well, not often, but once in a while, there'll be a news story pop, pop up in journalism about the, uh, the the newest prime number that's been discovered. Yeah, and right. you know they're not easy to find. <laughs> not now because the, the numbers are so so you know incredibly large. And so they they have supercomputers trying to calculate what the next prime number is. It's it's quite remarkable. But yeah, I, I would think across the board, mathematics is the same for um, humans as it is for you know Martians and and well, yeah. Certainly, it works in the solar system the way it works here on Earth. Whether yeah. it works, you know, on some galaxy at the other edge of the universe, other end of the universe is a different matter. Indeed. Mm. But, Andrew, I uh, love the question. Thanks for mm. sending it in and uh, so good to hear from you. And thanks to everybody who contributed to the program this week. Don't forget, if you do have questions for us, you can send them via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA link up the top and that's where you can send us audio and text questions or you can click on the thing on the right-hand side and record your voice message right there. It's uh, it's really quite simple. And uh, that's all there is to it. So spacenutspodcast.com or you can go um, to spacenuts.io is the other URL if you prefer. They both take you to the same place. So, you know, potato, potato. Uh, that brings us to the end, Fred. Thank you so much. Great to catch up. And I hope that dishwasher turns out <laughs> to be a real winner. Sounds like it's going in nice and solid. We hope so too. Yeah. I think it's going to be part of the fabric of the of the house. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, thanks, Fred's uh, universe. Thanks very much, Andrew. We'll speak again soon. Now. Good to talk to you. Catch you <laughs> yeah. soon. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And, of course, we say thanks to Hugh back in the studio for doing whatever it is that Hugh does. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for joining us. Look forward to your company next week. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>